Yeah, before I begin the sermon, our time of worshiping through the study of God's Word, I do like to highlight the men's conference. Uh, it is next weekend. Um, if you're able to go, I would highly uh, suggest you go. Uh, Dr. Clausen is, uh, he was actually one of our, uh, Roger and I, had, when we, we started seminary together, he was our professor. He was actually the first professor we had because it was, in the first, it was in one of like the first early classes on hermeneutics. And um, over the years when I had him as professor, in a lot of ways he was like a mentor to all of us, he had a high view of God's word and he made sure that we were people that, um, that took God's word seriously. And at the tail end of our seminary time, he taught ordination prep. Uh, and that's the that's a class where they basically teach you how to answer questions publicly. And he would grill us. He gave us like a list of questions. He said, of the, all the list of questions, you get to study. He assigned one topic, and then he uh, and then the other question, he said, is just up in the air. You just have to figure it out as you go. And um, it was a great time. It was, it was like it kind of simulated what it was like to be under the, the spotlight and under that pressure of, of people asking you questions. So any success that Rajan had, had in terms of like the ordination exam, we, we thank him for because he trained us for it. Um, but yeah, Dr. Klausen, we used to be a missionary in Samar, Russia. Uh, so he, you know, he did a lot of uh, things in, for the kingdom of God, both in, here in the United States as well as elsewhere. Uh, he's a really godly man. Uh, he leads a men's ministry down there, and which is why well, really is particularly for you men, uh, it would be a great time for you to get to know uh, him and get to just hear uh, his teaching. Um, during the last Shepherds Conference, at the very last day, I asked the men, like, who do you want me to get for the men's conference? And they said, Dr. Clausen. And I ran into his office panting, like, hey, Dr. Clausen, are you free this fall? And he's like, oh, yeah, uh, sure. And, then, you know, um, he decided to come. So it is a huge blessing. Uh, if you're able to go, please sign up. Uh, there's still room. Uh, don't worry. It's, even if you show up last minute, you might not have food, but, but you're welcome to join the men's conference. Again, that's next Saturday. And again, it's a great opportunity not just to learn from him, but also get a chance to know some of the other men in the church as well. I think our church is at a, at a capacity where sometimes we, we won't, there are just people that we may not get to know in the men's conference. They do have little breakup sessions, kind of like the discussion groups we have on Friday nights where you get to, instead of, of you know, talking with um, just you know, people in, in our age group for the men's conference, we usually get to talk with people that are from throughout the whole church. So it's a great opportunity for you to get to know people in the church as well as uh, getting fed the Word of God. With that said, please open your Bibles to, to Mark. We've been gone for a few weeks in the, in the Gospel of Mark for a little summer series about the church community, and now we're back. Mark chapter 10 is going to be our text this morning, or evening, sorry. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. We'll begin by reading the Word of God, and then we'll pray, and we'll get to the sermon. So Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees, began, uh, some Pharisees came up to Jesus testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and sent her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God 
made them male and female. For this reason, man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh, so they, no longer, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man separate. And the house of the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. This is the word of God. Father God, Lord, we're thankful to be able to go and return back to the gospel of Mark, to be able to see uh, your life in this particular gospel, to see how you are teaching and encouraging and strengthening disciples to be faithful disciples and representative of you back in the time, and also for us to be able to be faithful disciples now. Pray, Lord, you could be with us this evening. Allow us to be able to concentrate and have your word impact our lives so that we can be used by you for your glory. In your son's name I pray. Amen. There's a man in Japan, and he's really good at what he does. He has this particular skill set, and it's not really an interesting skill set if you're not interested in things that he's working on or the things that he collects. But he, he got this name because of what his ability is, which is to repair it. He is named, he was, the name that was given to him by the public is called the God Hand. What makes him so special is that when you give him these old pottery, whether they're um, tea kettles or cups, plates, whatever antique item, he is able to repair it. In fact, he has uh, so much, he's just so detailed about repairing these old places, that he actually have dirt from those eras so he can remake the clay if, if necessary. He said this, he, from, from different eras, he was able to have different materials to help recreate the old things that you think of as already long gone and broken. And there's one particular thing that he was trying to fix. It was a little teapot and the handle was broken. And he observed it, and he said that this was repaired at one point, and the person that asked him to fix it, he noticed that these pieces actually didn't belong to the original tea kettle. And he told the owner, like, this doesn't belong here. In fact, some of these pieces are from a different era. And they asked what he can do, and he's like, I can do the best that I can to repair it. And when he, he, it takes you know, months and months for him to slowly chip away at things. In fact, with that one particular vase, the glue that was used, he hand-scraped it out with this little almost like a, this little fork thing. He used it to kind of chip it away little bit by little. He had this magnifying glass. He just chipped away little by little. And then over time, he was able to try to reconstruct it. He even repainted everything to the point where you wouldn't even, you can't even tell that there were any cracks in it. He was able to reverse engineer this thing because he had an understanding of what, it, what the original looked like. He knew what it looked like. He knew what the arrow was like. He was able to understand uh, the idea behind all of these different potteries. So he was able to repair it, something that is broken. I think of that illustration when I think about people that go through divorce. Divorce is something that impacts everyone around them. If it impacts friends, and it certainly impacts the family, that's part of it. And I think if you and I were to be just looking back in our own life, I'm sure we've 
we've known someone, or even personally in your life, you've known someone that went through a divorce. And it's messy, and it's complicated, and it's quite possibly one of the most damaging thing in this culture. In fact, someone asked John MacArthur once if there was one thing that he wished he knew more about from the Lord, what would it be? And he said he wished that the, that the Lord gave him maybe a few more verses on divorce, because a divorce is very complicated. And people in our culture believe that there's like a 50% chance where all marriages end in divorce. And that's possibly true in the culture, but in my experience, in the context of the church, it's a little bit less. But the fact that there is still some divorce in church is heartbreaking. It's often described as as the second most stressful thing a person goes through, first being death or going through death. But divorce is something that is difficult. Marriage is a precious thing, and the world, unfortunately, doesn't take, doesn't take it, doesn't view it the way that Christians should. But sadly, even the, world, even the Christian church as well sometimes have a very shallow view of marriage, which is why divorce happens so often. For those of you who've been, who haven't been with us when we, uh, when we were starting the series of the book of Mark, you understand that the book of Mark is about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. We look at the servant life of Christ and it's supposed to empower the Christians at the time who are going through a tremendous amount of persecution to know the cost of following Jesus Christ. It takes a lot. It's going to take their whole life. And, and when they look at different aspects of the, of the Lord's life, they are supposed to see what is expected of them as a Christian. Back, back in chapter 9, if you just look back at it, it talks about how the st- things that cause you to stumble, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your, having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. He, he does that same thing with the foot and the eye. So this, all of this context here is about what it costs to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because it is costly, and it requires us to have a radical view of discipleship, and marriage is part of that. Marriage connects with discipleship and vice versa. Now, it's strange. I know we've been gone for, from the book of Mark for a while to come back into the series this, uh, this fall and to, to go through divorce. You might be wondering, I think most of you are not married in this room. You might be wondering, why do I need to learn about this? Well, for one, it's just the next part of the passage. We were in chapter 9, and now we're in chapter 10. We're just going verse by verse through the book of Mark. But I think even for some of you that are single, it is important for you to understand what a marriage is like, and which will help you understand what divorce is like. And I'm not, saying, I'm not hoping that any of you will ever go through that, but there is a reality that whenever someone... Whenever a married couple goes through a divorce, there's oftentimes at least one person in the marriage that has forgotten the vow that they've made with the Lord. I have the privilege to be able to marry some people off in the time I've been a pastor. And it's, it's, it's exciting to see. And unfortunately, even in my life as being a groomsman for some weddings and best man for some other weddings, I've also seen marriages that did not end well. And I often wonder, what were they lacking? I think for those moments, one, either one per- person or both of them forgot the importance of marriage. And I know some of you here are married as well. Some of you are engaged. 
And if you are engaged, you're probably still in a single category, but you know, you're, in, you're getting close to that marriage side. And for those that are married, I want you guys to just be, when you look at this text, to continue to be faithful to your spouse. Continue to remember the vow that you've made before the Lord. That this vow that you made is not something that you should take lightly. Because that's what the Pharisees did at the time. The religious leaders at the time, they, had, they were very loose when it comes to divorce. So, for us this evening, we're going to learn about divorce. And we just like this, just the three scenes here. When the first scene is called the challenge of divorce. The second, the confrontation on divorce. And the last is a clarification on divorce. The first scene here to help us understand divorce, hopes that we can basically prepare and guard ourselves from it, is a challenge on divorce. Look at verse 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. And standing up, he went from there to the region of Judea, and beyond the Jordan, crowds gathered around him, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. So there is some unique context here. It says that he went to this place, this region of Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And it seems so insignificant for us, but you have to remember this area. It was significant because this is the same place that John the Baptist uh, was doing his ministry. And you recall several months back, we learned about the life of John the Baptist, how he was killed because he went against um, Herod of Antipas, the heir of Antipas at the time, was he, he stole his brother's wife, and John the Baptist confronted this individual because he's committing adultery. And the result of that is that he was killed for it. He was beheaded because he was, because uh, Herod was challenged, and remember his, basically his, uh, his, there's a lady that said, I'm with the head of John the Baptist because he's related to the family. He didn't want, this family didn't want to be confronted by their sin, even though Herod, Antipas, understood and knew that John the Baptist was a real prophet, but yet he was killed for confronting. He was, he was, he was, he was killed because, he, because John the Baptist confronted him on his sin. And this is strategic here by the Pharisees. They knew that where Jesus was. This is the region where Herod uh, reigned, and, he was, and, the, and the, the Pharisees understood, maybe here's our opportunity to get rid of Jesus. They were frustrated with Jesus because they they knew that Jesus was, was special, and he was able to do all these supernatural um, abilities. He had all these supernatural abilities. He was able to cast out demons, heal people. He often, Jesus often openly corrected them and rebuked them for their sins. And they're trying to find a way to get Jesus to stop. So they thought, in this area, in this particular region, here's the opportunity. If we could get him to just talk about divorce, then maybe Herod will get wind of what he has to say and kill Jesus as well. You see in uh, verse 2, and some of the Pharisees came up to Jesus testing, uh, testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. There was this theological uh, conservative group of people as well as theological liberals, and these individuals came, they were testing him. They thought that they could pressure Jesus and corner him to try to get him to say something that might get a group of people upset to kill him. They tried to trap him. In fact, this is, they said they began to question him. This is, the hope is to discredit Jesus in terms of uh, attacking the, in terms of 
the way the Jews respond, it will either impact the Jewish people who had a very loose view of divorce or the Romans, and hopefully this is where Herod comes in, that maybe he will catch him in so that basically the Jews try to get both sides, both from Jews and Gentiles, to turn on Jesus. And they began to question him. They said whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And they're trying to justify sin because even these Pharisees, they had a whole bunch of people that they've divorced and left and remarried and divorced and remarried again. And Jesus was going to confront them on them in a way that they didn't expect. They were trying to trap him in, in a lot of ways. Jesus kind of saw and anticipated what's going to happen. And he countered their move with a whole bunch of questions. Now, I think it's helpful for us to understand what were some of the Jews thinking at the time. There were two groups of Jewish leaders and even much two types of Jewish rulers, much like how we, even in evangelicals, we have like the conservative type people as well as the liberals. Well, they had that as well on the Jewish side. In the more conservative side, the more strict, they said they, there's no divorce whatsoever except for sexual immorality. And that's where I think we would generally agree because that's true. You, there's no divorce except for sexual immorality. But on the other end, the liberal side, which is the, there were a group of people like this, they believed that anything... If there's a certain category or a, a passage in Scripture where they kind of loosely interpret and they build the theology around that it's not actually accurate. And that is found in actually Deuteronomy 24. We'll look at there in a second, but just understand that this group of people, they, anything that they viewed at that time that was indecent in their eyes, they were, they were willing to divorce. So one of the things that was written down that became a tradition for this group of people is that, that if, if a wife was infertile, that's the grounds of divorce. If the wife only was able to help, only can give girls instead of sons, that was the grounds for divorce. If the wife uh, burned the food, that was the grounds for divorce. If the wife spoke poorly against her mother-in-law, that was the grounds for divorce. And again, in that culture, it wasn't like women didn't really go up to men and ask for divorce like now, but back then, the men would be the only people that would give they will file this little, there's like a little note or letter saying they were going to divorce them. So there was a little bit of confusion going on in terms of what their view of divorce. And the Pharisees, thinking that they could try to trick Jesus, decided to question him. Again, their hope was that they, were, they would bend something, that Jesus will come out with a question that would offend some sort of party, and that they will end up killing him. Of course, we know that Jesus was clever were way more clever than the, than, the disciples, than the Pharisees. We see here, actually, the second scene. The first was a challenge in divorce. They were challenging him. And then the, now we get to the confrontation about divorce. So, look at verse 3. And he, Jesus, answered them and said to him, What did Moses command you? Which is a great way to... It's a great uh, tool when it comes to being challenged. You know, if, if someone asks you a question... One way that you can do just to have judo their, their questions, to ask a question themselves, ask for clarifying questions. And that's what Jesus did. He, he asked them, what did Moses command? And it's a trick question, because in the Old Testament, there actually isn't a command. He's just trying to test and see what they're going to say. And uh, when, when they say Moses here, it means the law, like kind of like the Old Testament. And he asked them, what did, uh, what did Moses command you? What was God's intent? And verse 4 said, and they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And this, 
uh, this is the passage here, and we're going to actually jump there now. If you have, so turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 24. This is the text where they get that idea from, from Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 to 4. See here, chapter, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from her house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on this land, which the Lord your God gives you inheritance. So this is the place where they got the idea of why it's okay to divorce. But you notice as we were walking through this, verse 1 to 3, was it wasn't a command about what you need to do, about why you can divorce someone. There's no mandate here. Rather, in Deuteronomy 24, in the context, he's just explaining a situation. This is just an example. He explains that if this situation happens, then what are you supposed to do? In verse 4, it says that uh, they're not allowed to remarry someone that is divorced. A, divorce, a divorced person cannot remarry. But the liberal Jews at the time, when they saw the word indecency, they interpret that as just everything that I listed, anything that they don't like. But in the context in the Old Testament, it seems like the word indecency is anything, it wasn't exactly sexual sin because if it was sexual sin, they would just kill them. If there was any adultery in the Old Testament, they would just kill the person. So indecency was something that was, it was bad enough where it was only maybe like a step away from adultery. It, it, they didn't know, it, you can kind of interpret what that might be, but it's some sort of sexual lewdness that was short of adultery. And, and if that was the case, he was, he was going to give her the certificate of divorce. Again, this was not a command, but it was just more like here's an illustration of what they were supposed to do. And the people here, the Jews, they misinterpret and, mis- and they really try to bend Scripture so that they can do what they want. But Jesus responds later and explains why that's, why that's the case. Again, this, in the context here, it's not speaking necessarily of the command from Moses, but rather the fact that there might have been some sort of indecency in this situation, this is what you're supposed to do. But the context there, again, is not about having a divorce. Rather, if someone does get a divorce, you're not allowed to remarry that person that is divorced unlawfully. Again, if the person was, in, in the Old Testament time, if they did commit adultery, they would be killed. So then that's how they could get remarried. But the person um, leaves their husband or, or, commit, or you know, gets a divorce in that way, they're not allowed to remarry. And... Uh, this is what, what the intent, now go back to Mark chapter 10. That's kind of the intent, and that's the understanding of Deuteronomy 24. And it's important because for us, we need to learn something about false teachers, and that is they have a tendency to take scripture out of context. The Pharisees at the time were doing just that. All of the different sects of, of you know, the scribes, all of them, um, they in some places would get some things right, in other places would get it wrong. And all the different Jewish groups their hope really is to get what they want by bending scripture to their will. And that's not what, uh, and that's what, and that, that, that's like a sign of a false teacher, that they often will just probably bend scripture for their own will. 
And when the Pharisees said that, Jesus responded in verse 5. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote for you this command. Divorce exists because sin exists. And it says here that the hardness of heart is like a cirrhosis. It's, it's, it, there's something that's just hardened in their hearts. They chose not to listen to God's word. And God, and if there was a divorce, if the reason is a divorce, it's really to protect the ladies there. Because God understood that, yeah, man could be evil, and it's supposed to protect them. It really is a deterrent. It's supposed to make sure that this doesn't happen, so that people, they see the cost and the weight of divorce, and then it's supposed to make them not want to do that. Rather, it's supposed to make them repent so they continue to walk faithfully with the Lord. And divorce is saying, and this is, you know, again, God's command that because of their sinfulness, that God have gave them this particular command. The people were uncaring, and they were indifferent to the word of God, and that's why God put this there to protect the people from continuing on in their sin. They had no desire for God, and this is tragic because sin makes us do more sin. Sin calluses the heart and makes us not love the Lord. It was never part of God's design, but it needed to ensure people will not sin. This again is kind of giving guardrails to those who decide in their own hearts, I'm going to divorce my wife no matter what. And this is why Jesus again explains. He said, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus goes all the way back to creation, predating the, the law. He goes all the way back to that this was God's original design in terms of God making them male and female. I mean, this, this is what the marriage is supposed to look like. It's God's divine design that there's, in a marriage is male and female. And it's the original plan and template for all of the marriage throughout history. And this is what God thought was good. God intended this to be a good thing for man and woman to flourish and for, the, you know, for people to thrive and enjoy life together. And in verse 7, this is from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother. This is only a principle for future generations because Adam and Eve didn't have parents, but they were, they were given this instruction that when they have kids, they were supposed to let them go. In fact, that's what this word leave means. It means to abandon. And this, it sounds very negative, but this, it's this idea that once you're married, you're separated from your parents. And this is just Jesus course-correcting their thinking here by going back to the beginning. Verse 8, and the two shall become one flesh, so they no longer two, they're no longer two, but one flesh. These two, and they become one as a single unit, and, um, and this is this idea of, of that they are united in one in terms of not just the physical component, though there is a physical component to it, but also just in fact that they're relational. They are one. They're responsible for one another. Your body belongs to your spouse, and your spouse's body belongs to you. Now, this is a lesson, I think, for all of you that are single, and for even for all of us that are married here, that marriage is going to be difficult at times. There are going to be a lot of times where you have to repent or ask for forgiveness, there are going to be times when you have to study your spouse. You find ways to serve them. You sacrifice for them. You care for them. You have concern for them. You have to work it out. Marriage is not easy. It has a lot of blessings and joys that comes along with it, but there are going to be times where marriage is difficult. And you have to remember that the reason why you are with your spouse is because God has placed you there with them. And for you single people, as you're praying for a spouse, and I know some of you are, when you're praying for a spouse, you have to think in those terms that whoever the Lord has placed in my life, this is someone that I'm going to commit my life to, that I'm not going to even entertain the thought of divorce. Why is that? Because verse 9, Jesus says, 
What therefore God hath joined together, let no man separate. One must see and understand that marriage is ultimately God's divine plan in putting two people together. This word joined here is a word for glue or fusing together or stitching two together. It's God's divine plan. God makes no mistakes. In our culture, if you look at the divorce rate or even the reason for divorce, there's always something like they can't figure out the solution or that we're just not compatible anymore or I love somebody else. They are essentially saying that God is a liar, that God has not put this in our life and we don't need to be together anymore. But that's not the case. God has joined two individuals together. Our marriage, all of our marriage has, has a divine origin in that God is the one who puts us together. And this is how we need to view that. This is what we unfortunately see in our culture, but that should not be in the life of the Christian. Now again, I do want to specify or clarify a little bit about divorce. Yet, are there situations? Yes, there are situations where where there might be moments for divorce. But I don't want people to go into the marriage thinking that they're that that's an option. Even culturally, we have these things called prenup. It's like pre-divorce. Like in case we divorce, let me keep. What's mine, you can keep it what's yours. You make these decisions and arrangements beforehand, thinking and almost anticipating that if this doesn't work out, that should not be in the mind of the Christian. Because we understand that what God has joined together, let no man separate. And here, the term let no man, it's, you can interpret as in terms of either one of the spouse or maybe a third party, meaning someone else tries to tear the marriage apart by having an affair. And whatever, however you want to interpret that, it is God's divine plan that a marriage stays together and let no man separate. So Jesus first explains divorce by, uh, and the scene was challenging, and he confronts now, and he confronts divorce. The third is a clarification on divorce. So one, our first point was that he was a challenge on divorce. The second point is a confrontation on divorce. And third, a clarification on divorce. Verse 10, and in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. So the house is, is the house, so it was most likely maybe Peter's home or one disciple's place. Um, they began questioning Jesus. They wanted to understand what was going on. Why did Jesus respond the way he did? It, it, he, they they, they kind of understood generally what was going on, but they, they needed clarification. And this is what Jesus said to them. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. So whoever, this is anyone on the planet, when they divorce, meaning this is like abolishing the relationship or put away his wife and marries another woman, this isn't being someone that's belonging to someone else, commits adultery against her, so the original spouse. Um, adultery, and, and why this is, is that adultery expands because of divorce. And what he's actually saying here is that when you have an unbiblical divorce and you choose to marry someone else, Every time you're with that other person, the person that, uh, that did the unbiblical divorce, they're committing adultery. They are actually committing, they're continually con uh, committing adultery. That's actually what this word against her means. And the same thing with uh, later on when it's uh, committing adultery. It's this continual action. When you fail to repent and you choose to leave your original spouse and marry somebody else, you're continually committing adultery in the eyes of the Lord. You can say all you want that, oh, that was my old marriage and that was, I was not compatible with that person this time, this second marriage, this is the real deal. That doesn't work with the Lord. The Lord doesn't care about your rationale, why you did what you did. 
in the Lord's eyes, you have sinned against him, and you're continually committing adultery against your original spouse. And then Jesus makes the same parallel again in, this, in verse 12. And if she, this, and again, I said earlier that women, bear, it almost never happens in the Old Testament or the New Testament time where a woman would divorce a husband. So here, Jesus tells us that even in this situation, Jesus holds both gender accountable. So for if some weird, social, awkward moment, even in that time, if a woman divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery against her original husband. That's what, that's what it means when she is committing adultery against her husband, her first husband. And this is, uh, again, this is a rule that the Jews broke, but this is also very common in terms of the Gentile mind. Divorce is never pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. God has descri- is described in the Old Testament as hating divorce. And Jesus clarifies this because these people, they were so, the culture at the time were so free when it comes to divorce. They have such a low view of marriage that they didn't understand that every time they marry someone else and they divorce that person and marry them, each time they're committing a sin, they're committing adultery, they're compounding sin against God. This was some of the Pharisees' excuse, and Jesus tried to give them clarification of why Jesus responded what he did. What does leave the question, makes us wonder, is, there, is, is marriage ever allowed in Scripture? And I remember when I candidated here, they, the elders gave me a scenario about divorce and remarriage, and they asked a question about that. And I remember that was like the second hardest question that I had to answer. The first one being, they asked, they basically changed the whole question to like, hey, we want to ask you a question that you can't sneeze. That was like the most horrifying question. But the second most horrifying question they asked was this. It was about divorce and remarriage. They, they're just, they just gave a scenario, and they're wondering, what would you do if you're a pastor of church and this happened? How would you shepherd the people? How, what's your view on divorce and remarriage? And I do think there are four reasons why you can remarry. I think the first, the most obvious one is death. When the person is dead, you're free to remarry. This is Romans Chapter 7, verse 2. For the married man is bound by law to, oh, sorry, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So there is a, I guess the first one, which it makes sense, you know, if, a, if your spouse is dead, you're not, and you still feel that loneliness and don't have the gift of singleness, that there's nothing wrong with marrying someone else. You're free from that responsibility. The second uh, c- category of when a person is allowed to remarry, and I think this is debatable for some people, but I hold to this view is that if there's a divorce before they were married, before they were saved. So they were, they, lived, they were married, they get divorced, they're not a believer, and that person at some point does become a believer, then they, can, they are allowed to get married as long as the person's in the faith. Because it says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. And we know that because... You know, there are a lot of people that lived a certain way. They have no clue what, what's pleasing to the Lord. But yet God gives us grace that he died for the sin of divorce. 
And then because of that, after you're saved, you can remarry again. So death is one reason. Divorce before salvation. Third reason why you can and you're allowed to remarry is abandonment. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. This is the passage on singleness. And then it gives a, a command on what husbands and wives are supposed to be in terms of just keeping their marriage. But there is a situation going on, and, and Paul tries to address this. Uh, verse I guess we can go from verse 12. Uh, actually, we'll start from verse 13. Uh, and, what, and a woman who has an unbelieving husband, he consents to live with her. She must not send her husband away. So if, two, if, there's, if, if there's two people, like a married couple, and then the spouse becomes a believer, one spouse becomes a believer, and the other one is not, but the unbelieving husband or wife is still willing to live with that person, they're not allowed to send them away. However... Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So there are, again, same scenario, husband and wife, one of them becomes a believer, the other one maybe puts up with Christianity for a while, but then gets frustrated and gets tired of the fact that this spouse is living for the Lord, going to church, Bible study, and they end up just saying, I don't want to be part of your life anymore. You want to do your Christian thing? That's fine. That makes you happy. I'm out. Then that's okay. Then we have instruction from the Lord that if that unbelieving spouse leaves that person, the believing spouse that's still, that, you know, that's, that, that went through divorce is free to remarry again. So either death divorce before salvation, abandonment for the faith. And the last one is adultery. Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. This is Jesus speaking when it comes to divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces a wife except for the reason of unchastity, which is basically being unfaithful, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So there is this exception in that if your spouse commits adultery, the innocent party has the right to end the marriage. Now, does that mean that that's going to be a guarantee? No, because I know, I'm pretty certain, that there has been people, whether in this church or other churches, where a spouse did commit adultery and the marriage still worked out at the end. It involves a lot of grace, involves a lot of forgiveness, a lot of rebuilding of trust, but it is possible However, if the, uh, why God gives this exception clause here is because adultery just shatters a marriage. It, it, it violates all kinds of trust, and there is grace for the ones that feel the victim here to file for divorce. But it's not, a, it's not necessarily that they have to, but at least it, there is that escape for them. And Jesus tries to clarify in terms of what this what divorce is, and I hope that gives you some clarification what divorce is, because it is a complicated subject. I know that even some things I've listed, some people might go against it, but this is just generally from what I can study in Scripture about this topic, that they're, generally speaking, yes, there are exceptions to divorce, but outside of these four reasons on why a person, these four reasons, there shouldn't be any divorce or remarry. So my hope is for us to understand that God is the one who orchestrates all marriages. And that as believers, as disciples of Jesus Christ, 
If you're a single person, this is the cost that you need to think. To follow Jesus means that you're willing to work out your future marriage. When you're, you're dating right now, and you're, if you're single, you're thinking about dating, you're, or you are dating, or you're engaged, before you're married, you have to resolve in your heart that I will not entertain the thoughts of divorce, that I will not joke about it, I will not even discuss it with my spouse or my future spouse, but you need to resolve in your heart and mind that divorce is never on the table. The excuses are plenty, but God is clear that he hates divorce. So for you that are single and you're thinking about following Jesus, that means that you're willing to work out the marriage, your future marriage. And the same thing for you, those that are married. Yes, I know that marriage has its difficulties. There's a lot of stress that could come with it in times, especially when it comes to sin. But we are called to be faithful disciples of Christ. And that's part of being faithful disciple of Christ is in the context of your own marriage. That you seek to honor the Lord and be faithful in uh, in your marriage. So wives, you have to continue to learn to be submissive and respectful to your husbands. And husbands, you need to continue to learn and love your wife the way that Christ loves the church. This is not something that happens once or maybe a few weeks after you get married in the honeymoon period. This is the ongoing thing that you go through throughout the entire life. It is going to be hard for some of you wives to honor and respect and submit to your husband. It is going to be hard for you husbands to lead your wives and to love them and, and keep seeking to understand them. But by God's grace, if you understand that you are first and foremost a disciple of Jesus Christ before even a husband or a wife, that you'll do these things because you know that Christ is worth it. The reason why your marriage is going to be is going to be solid is not because of your own looks or the things that you provide for the other person. It's because of your devotion to Jesus Christ. We have to understand that it is God's hand that created marriage, that he has never, in his original intent for marriage, for it to, ha- to end in a divorce. Again, I think for some of you guys here that are still single, you reap what you sow in marriage while you're still single. So when you're thinking about it now, as a single person, as a you know, college or career, wherever you're at, that you need to have these convictions down now. And, we want to, and you also want to be the godly character that God wants you to be. And that means cultivating a heart of, of Christ-likeness. You know, when there's a verse that says about adultery here, or when I, when I, when I did the Matthew 5 passage, that passage in particular, it speaks of any kind of sexual deviancy. Any sexual acts. So the context in that Matthew 5, it's not just speaking of adultery with just like male with a female, but male and males or male bestialities or siblings or whatever it may be. Any type of sexual act that's a sin, God will allow the person, the the faithful spouse for divorce. But this is something you need to resolve now. You need to, right now, before you're married, kill off any sin that might cause your heart to, to stray away from faithfulness to the Lord. Because when you're unfaithful to the Lord, you're never going to be unfaithful to your spouse. So whether it is things like guarding your purity or developing or any type of sin, it's only going to be magnified when you are married. For those of you guys are married now, you understand, like, this is hard. It's not easy. It's rewarding, but it has its difficulties. And you need to, you, and I, again, I sympathize. It, you need to continue to humbly repent uh, before the Lord, ask your spouse for forgiveness and, and pray with your spouse and work out your, your marriage with fear and trembling because that is just part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, that you're willing to obey God's word no matter the cost. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, Lord, thank you for your time as we learn about this topic of divorce. And I pray for 
all the husbands and wives here, in this, not just in joiners, but this church as well, that all of us will seek to be faithful to you by being, by being devoted in the way that we go about our marriage, in the way that we care for the spouse, in the way that we serve the, our spouse, in the way that we die to ourselves, the way that you want us to. Want us to. But we know that there's no greater love than this than the person willing to lay down his life for his friend. And no closer friend for us than, than our own spouse. So I pray for all the married people here that you keep them faithful to you. Uh, protect them from any type of sexual sin that might cause them to, to, to waver or, or be tempted to leave their spouse. Guard all the marriages here so that you can be glorified and to be a picture of what you are to the church. Lord, I also pray for the single people here. Uh, as, um, as if it's your divine will for some, or if not all the single people here to get married, that you give them conviction and clarity on this topic, that they never toy or entertain the idea of divorce, but that they, they take the marriage vow seriously, knowing that the vow is not just before their, their future spouse or even to the people they're watching, but primarily to you, Lord. And Lord, build those convictions in, into their hearts today so that they can magnify your name in their future marriages. Regard their hearts now, allow them to cultivate Christ-likeness in their singleness, so that they can, um, cult- so, that they, so that your name will be, or your, so that they can faithfully honor you in their marriage, Lord. Thank you for everything. In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, thank you for listening. I do have some discussion questions for you. Did I send it? Did I not hit send? I did. Oh, okay, it's not on the screen. Okay, ha. Huh. Okay, yeah, so, so here are your discussion questions, but before you guys break up into your discussion groups, I do want to, I know that, I think we're starting our new discussion groups within, I think some of you are this week or a few weeks from now, but I do want to at least give you just a heads about why discussion groups are important, um, because, you know, when we break up into the groups, it's not just a social time, although there are social aspects to it. But you have to see discussion groups first as a c- accountability. Um, when you're in these groups, you have, it, part of it, yeah, you're praying for each other, you're getting to know each other. These things are great, but you need to take ownership of the group that you're in. Um, the Lord has sovereign, I, I know it's like we sometimes count off, but ultimately God is the one who providentially moved your group together, and you, you want to be accountable to it. You want to show up to fr- Friday nights, and, um, and even for those that don't show up, you want to be able to understand why. You know where these people are at. So you care for them. You know, there's accountability to it. Second, there's also just a way for you to forge deeper friendships. Um, I know that throughout the week you might not be able to meet uh, one another, and Friday nights really, or maybe even Sunday, but here on Friday nights, you get an opportunity to kind of dive deeper just for a little while into each other's lives. And as we go through this semester, this quarter, maybe several months, this is an opportunity for you to build godly relationships, which is kind of what we learned about in our last series about the healthy church, is that the church are people that cultivate godly relationships with one another. And third, it's, it's also a way for you to find ways to serve one another. Um, serve those in your group. You know them. You, you understand what their needs are. And this is a way, an, an opportunity for you to exercise your spiritual gifts, uh, to find out what uh, their needs are so you can help meet their needs. So, you know, take advantage of these discussion groups. Um, don't take it for granted that you have these people in your life. Cherish them, uh, develop deeper relationships with them so that you guys can walk together, walk alongside one another in the faith and encourage each other to be more like Christ. So uh, with that said, I'm going to give it to uh, Matt. And I think, uh, yeah, I could give any clo- closing announcements.